The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon, and welcome to the very first episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. My name is Elizabeth Heaton. I'm going to be your host as we talk through the college process, everything from getting into college to paying for it. Um, Just to give you a little bit of information, since this is our first show on my background, um, I used to be an admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania where I read a lot of applications every year. Uh, I think on average of about 1,300, and my job was to advocate for those students, and then I also chaired selection committees, so I was uh, making final admit decisions on students from other regions. Um, and I've been here at College Coach now for almost nine years, uh, and I work with students and families from all over the world on the process of planning for and getting into college. Um, Our hope with this show is really to help you understand how it all works and offer you the perspectives of those of us who've made decisions, whether admitting students into college or awarding financial aid, uh, and really just offering you the perspective of what happens on the other side of the desk and how some of the choices that you're making or that your kids are making when they file their applications are going to affect their chances and also the amount of money that you may or may not get um, to go to college. Um, so today's episode, we're going to be talking about a number of things, including the new SAT, which is uh, at the top of the mind of a lot of the families that I'm talking to every week. Uh, I'm going to be answering some questions at the end of the hour, but we're going to start with what I would consider sort of the uh, ever-present, the eternal question of whether it's better to get an A in the college prep course or a B in the honors level course. And I'm going to welcome my colleague, Sally Ganga, who's a former admissions officer at University of Chicago, Reed and Whittier. Uh, and we're going to talk through uh, curriculum and the, the you know, decision whether or not to take those higher level courses and what impact that may or may not have on your college admissions. So welcome, Sally, and thanks for joining me today. Hello. Hi. Thank you so That's much a- for having me on today. Absolutely. We're thrilled to have you here. And just to kind of get started on this, because what many people may or may not realize is that the transcript is really going to be the most important piece of any college application. So as an admissions officer reviewing those transcripts, what is really, what would you say is the basic expectation for, uh, for a student and what you hope to see on that transcript? Sure. Well, obviously it depends on which college, but for anybody who wants to attend a, a selective or highly selective school, the expectation is that they've gone far beyond just the basic high school requirements. So we're talking ideally four years of math, four years of English, obviously that is required, 
four years of history or social science, four years of a science, and ideally four years of a foreign language. Now, I want to emphasize that I mentioned foreign language. A lot of people don't realize that that is considered one of the core subjects, but it absolutely is. And I absolutely noticed if a student stopped taking foreign language after two years, even, and, um, and it was not a positive thing in my evaluation at, a, at a, you know, the highly selective schools like Chicago and also at Reed. So what about for the schools that are less selective? So certainly a lot of attention in the media will be on those very selective schools like Penn, uh, like Chicago. Um, what about those schools, just maybe your local state school or just the local more regional university nearby? Um, what do they think about? Is it important to them to stick with all five subjects for all four years of high school? Well, in reviewing those um, those requirements, I, I used to be a high school counselor as well, so I had to advise a lot of students at varying levels. And in general, if a student took two years in high school, um, that was probably going to be enough. Um, but just remember that you never want to head for the minimum, because the other thing is, let's say you're weaker. I'll give you the example of a student that I worked with who was not the strongest student. She was kind of a B.C. student, right? Um, mm-hmm. She did have A's in Spanish, though. Now, when she came to me, um, she was planning on dropping Spanish in her senior year. And I said, excuse me, why, why <laughs> are you dropping Spanish? And she said, well, I just thought it you know, would give me a break, and foreign language doesn't really matter. So I you know, uh, gently corrected her, and um, foreign language does matter, and told her that this was a way that she, as a student with grades that were not um, excellent, um, this was a way that she could really show the schools that she was going above and beyond in at least one subject. Um, so I just I like to give that example, and I have to say that she got into a school that was definitely, you know, what we call a challenging school for her, and I think yeah. this played a role. Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the big um, things that I always want families, students, parents to understand is the idea that college is really about going above and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways in which you can show a college that you're ready for that, for that next level, is to go above and beyond in high school. So whether that is sticking with the foreign language for all four years or taking uh, a third year of a lab science, even though your high school only requires two years of a lab science or just simply sticking with all five of those subject areas for all four years, regardless of whether your goal is to go to Harvard or to go to um, your local state institution, it can always be helpful. And I think your example is a really good illustration of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, I completely agree. Um, yeah, without a doubt. If you're, shown, if, you, if you're a student who's just done the bare minimum, the colleges are going to know that that's all you've done. So, right. And you always have to think... You know, who are you being compared to? You will be compared to students who have done more than you. So remember that. So going back to the question that we started with, which was, is it better to get an A in the college prep or a B in the honors or AP, which is, I, I think this question comes up at every presentation that I give and in very many of the conversations that I have. I think that one piece of this question is really, is it, is it worth it to take an AP? Because the answer to the first question is, it depends. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's start with the smaller piece, which is, um, what do you think? Do you think it's worth it to take an AP? I absolutely do think it's worth it to take an AP, because you also you have to think um, beyond the grades to also the fact that you're learning skills 
of, uh, that are going to be very useful in college, of preparing yourself for a more rigorous level of curriculum. Um, I mean, there's different ways to look at it. Some families say, well, the, the, you know, the, uh, the GPA is the same if you get a B in an AP or an A in a regular course. So why go to the extra effort of the, um, of the A and the AP? That's where you have to step back from the, G, from the GPA and realize that colleges look at more than just the GPA. The colleges are going to be looking at the transcript holistically. And kind of as, I, I, as we talked about before, they want to see whether students have taken on a challenge. So the student who you know, got a B in an AP is nonetheless a student who took on a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do want to emphasize that. However, there are that it depends. So, right. So I could go into some of those. Like one of the examples that I would give you is I had a student who just was agonizing over whether he should take AP Biology in his senior year. He was already taking, you know, AP Government. He was taking AP English, but he was really dreading AP Biology. And when he asked me, will it help me get into this highly selective college um, I said, well, absolutely it will if you can do well in it. But if you have to work so hard to get even just a B in AP Biology that it brings all your other APs that might be A's down to B's, at that point it's not worth it. You've probably overextended yourself. So in general, yes, I want you to take the AP. But you also need to um, kind of try and think wisely about how much work you can actually get done and whether taking too heavy of a load is going to mean that all your classes drop down to B's. Because at that point, you, you're probably overextending yourself and you're probably not really helping yourself in the college process at that point. Yeah, I think it's worth it to point out that while um, certainly at some selectivity levels, as in the most selective and, and the tier just below that, the expectation is you're going to take the AP and you're going to get an A in it. There are many, many colleges out there who don't expect to see APs, maybe don't even expect to see honors. Uh, There are plenty of schools or there are schools out there where they don't make APs available to their students. So I think um, the overall takeaway for me anyway is that um, some rigor is good if the student can handle it, but um, too much rigor is not going to be appropriate for every student. And that doesn't mean that they're not going to go to college. Exactly. Uh, because there are lots of colleges where they'd be fine with the with no AP. Oh yeah, um, I mean, as I said, working at Whittier, we you know we did not require that a student take an AP. Right. Um, it was not necessary, but we were thrilled when a student took a really strong, well-rounded college prep curriculum. So it all depends on the college. Exactly. There's that that watch those two watchwords. It depends. You'll probably hear that a lot <laughs> exactly. over the course of of this show's run. Um, and you know, how do you determine? If how much rigor is too much rigor? Going back to that, um, I think you were kind of making this point earlier with your example of the student wanting to add AP Bio. Um, how would you tell or how would you suggest a family evaluate if there is too much rigor on their child's plate um, at this point? It can, be, it can be tough to do, but <clears throat> what I always recommend is that they talk to students in the classes above them who have maybe similar records to their own, who they think are kind of about, you know, have about their skill level um, in these different classes and say, you know, how much time did you spend on homework for this class every day? And then really try and systematically add up how much homework you're going to have mm-hmm. and try and be objective about whether you're going to be able to do that. I mean, if you, if, you know, taking AP Biology means you'll be up until 3 o'clock in the morning, I personally would say that's not worth it. <laughs> 
I would agree. <laughs> so, and I mean, some students do that, but I don't recommend it. And one of the things I always like to remind students, too, is you can take all these APs, you can stay up till 3 in the morning to get all A's, and still maybe not get into some of these most highly selective schools. So try to realize that high school is not a time to torture yourself for the next step. High school is the time to learn, and you will get into a good college. Exactly. I think that's a very important point. And um, I think, too, if you have a, a child who's starting out high school or is a freshman or sophomore and is trying some uh, higher-level courses for the first time, and they're traditionally, let's say, an all-A student, and then they take on a full complement of honors with maybe an AP um, thrown in there for good measure, and the grades go from uh, all-As to all-Bs, that's a sign that it's too much rigor. You shouldn't be seeing a full grade point drop across across the board, mm-hmm. um, and it's probably a sign to, to pull back in a few areas. And on the flip side of that, if the student is um, getting going from all A's to some A's, an A minus or two, and maybe a B plus, that's probably an appropriate le- level of rigor for that student. Mm-hmm. I would say even two B's, it could still be an appropriate level of rigor. Um, right. But when, yeah, when you start seeing more than that, then, yeah, I would say pulling back is probably a good idea. I do want to say that there's one exception that I'll make to the taking a full complement of honors and, and APs and getting all Bs, okay. and that is the, the student who I call the slacker. Uh, <laughs> there are we have students, one of those at home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think oh, we all know some of those students. Um, and, um, I mean, I run into this um, almost every single day at work. When I, if I have a full day of appointments, at least one family is going to come to me and say, you know, I don't know if my son should take honors or APs. He's very bright, but he doesn't work very hard. And so I kind of ask them more questions. And what, um, what comes out is that he basically works just hard enough to get a B. He knows a C is bad, but he doesn't really understand what the difference is between, a, between an A or a B. And why should he put in all that extra work just to get an A? In that situation, if their son is doing almost no work, or their daughter, but it, let's generalize, it, it is mm-hmm. more often sons, um, is doing almost no work to get a B in a college prep course. What I find is sometimes those students, you, you take them into the AP or maybe it could be International Baccalaureate or Honors, whatever the system might be, you put them into those tougher courses and they still do just enough to get a B, but they're learning more and they're preparing themselves better for the rigor that they're going to meet in college. And in that situation, I would say definitely, even if, if they're going to, do the minimum necessary to get B's, but they can handle all those APs, then it is still going to be worth it. Yeah, I would agree. I think that that's a case, too, where those students will set them up for having uh, themselves up for having more options um, when it comes time to look at colleges as well that are probably more appropriate for them because they they tend to be bright. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, I, I think, at, you know, my stepson is a great example of this. He also really liked being in those higher level courses and um, the students in those courses were a little bit more engaged or it felt like that to him. So even though he wasn't necessarily going to put in the maximum effort, it was still felt like a better fit to him. And so I do agree. I think that's a really good example of an exception to the rule. Mm-hmm. I would also say that every once in a while, I'll even see a student who starts getting A's just because suddenly they're interested. Before mm-hmm. they weren't, it was too boring, and so they refused to do enough work. But then once they're in the honors or the advanced level courses, whatever they might be, suddenly it was interesting enough that they put in that extra effort and, and started getting at least some A's. So that's the yeah. other exception that that isn't as rare as you would think. 
Yeah, I would agree. So we have um, a couple more minutes before we have to go to the break. And I did want to throw out there, what about IB programs? You mentioned it briefly in passing, International Baccalaureate. Um, We may have some listeners who are thinking, well, we don't have APs at our school. We have this IB program. Do colleges like that? Do they know what that is? Um, So is there anything you could tell those families? Sure. Um, The International Baccalaureate program is great. Um, I want to be clear, at at the University of Chicago, if a student just, um, as an example, um, if a student just took a couple IB courses, they were basically treated the same as AEP courses, you know, examples of some some very high-level classes. But when a student did a full IB um, diploma, um, which not all the families may know what that is, but if that's an option, it's extremely rigorous. And that is a situation where when we would see more Bs, um, we would admit students with Bs in a full IB diploma, whereas we, we might not have done that even with APs gotcha. um, because we considered the full IB diploma to be so remarkably rigorous. Mind you, it's been about 10 years now since I've worked at University of Chicago, so please don't take that as, you know, <laughs> license to get lots now. of Bs. I, you know, but, um, but I do want to be clear that the IB program was very highly regarded. We loved some of their classes like Theory of Knowledge, for example, um, so um, don't hesitate to, to go towards the IB curriculum if that's an option for you and it looks interesting to you. Yeah, and I would say the same thing at Penn. We, um, we certainly, I think when I was at Penn, we sort of viewed them fairly equivalently. Um, we did want at that very selective level, our expectation was that the student would be doing the full IB diploma, not just taking an IB course here or there. But I, I do get the sense um, from talking to colleagues and going to industry conferences that uh, that is the case everywhere. They, they really do see that IB program as being very strong. And whether it's an IB course or two or the full diploma, depending on the college and what their expectations are, um, they really do um, appreciate and approve of that. So um, as we head into the break, thank you so much, Sally, for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Um, After the break, we're going to talk the new SAT. So you may want to hang on the line and hear about this because I know it's something that all of our clients are asking about and all of the people that we talk to are asking about. Um, So I'm going to be welcoming uh, Jake Newberg from Revolution Prep, who's our trusted partner. And he's going to be telling us a little bit more about what's changing. And then Sally, I'm sorry, Mary Sue Yoon is going to join us and talk about how that might impact admissions. So join us uh, after the break. Thanks so much, Beth. Thanks, Sally. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, 
how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Museums are great places to work and wonderful places to visit. But are they essential? How can we improve our museum practice so that museums remain vital and essential players in society? Listen for Museum Life with host Carol Bossert where each week we'll discuss timely and topical issues of concern to the museum community. Museum Life can be heard live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks again for joining us today. In our second segment, we're going to be talking about the new SAT. And here to join me to discuss this, um, I have Jake Newberg, who is the co-founder and co-CEO of Revolution Prep, which is our trusted partner and uh, an organization that we have referred many families to. uh, And I personally have have experienced their success. My stepson worked with them and was able to improve his ACT score by a couple of points, which was really exciting. Um, And also Mary Sue Yoon, who is a colleague here at College Coach and a former admissions officer at Barnard College and Whittier. Um, Thanks so much for joining me, Jake and Mary Sue. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Jake, we want to start with you since you are the test expert. Um, And so for those of you who are listening and weren't aware that the SAT was changing, well, it is. And Jake's going to tell us a little bit more about that. So uh, I think really at a very basic level, what exactly is changing and what's going to be new? Um, Tell us a little bit more about it. Sure. Um, So... I'll talk that there are some major changes, but at the same time, the college board makes it sound like um, this is going to be the biggest change of a lifetime to the SAT, and it's going to be unrecognizable, which for those of us who have been in this world for a really long time is exactly what they said 11 years ago when they made the last once-in-a-lifetime change and 11 years before that. So I guess their definition of a lifetime is a little shorter than mine, but (laughs) this will be the third once-in-a-lifetime change since any of us took the SAT, so since 1994. Um, So that's one thing is they're changing it again. Um, Some of the big changes, well, the biggest one is it was out of 2,400 points for the last 11 years. When we Mm -hmm. took it, it was out of 1,600. So it's going back to that. 
So the fun thing is you'll be able to compare your score when you're growing up to your kid's score without them having a 50% advantage of it being out of 2,400. <laughs> um, so that's one change. Generally, they're trying to make it less of kind of this ivory tower exam where the SAT feels so different from every other test that a student's ever taken. You hear people say things like, oh, that sounds like an SAT word. Yep. They want to have it less uh, be less of an obscure test in that way. Okay. Um, and what about, uh, you know, so you said it's going back to 1600. It, it went up to 2400 uh, 11 years ago with that last change when they added that required writing section. So what's changing so that it goes back to 1600 points? Great question. So when they added the writing section, Really, it was already an SAT subject test in writing, so they just basically pulled it from a subject test to being a third section on the SAT. Now, they're basically combining it with the critical reading section. So now there's really, frankly, there's a math section and an English section. So instead of there being two English section, mm-hmm. sections, a writing and a reading, they've just combined those. Um, so now the multiple choice in both of those areas will be combined to give you a 200 out of 800 point scale score on that. And you'll have a 200 to 800 point score on the math. And then the essay, which on the current version of the SAT is actually part of your 800 point score on the writing, Mm -hmm. on this new SAT will actually just be optional. And that's actually a pretty significant change. Yeah, I would say so. Um, you know, the ACT has always, their writing section has always been optional. Uh, so it is interesting to see the SAT move to that sort of having a, a fairly major component of the test become an optional component of the test. Um, Absolutely. And another is, thing that's significantly mm-hmm. different about the essay is it used to be the very first section and it's now the very last section. And this mm-hmm. is important for a couple reasons. One, Um, it really messed with kids' heads a lot. And when you do that first, you're kind of thrown off your rhythm for the whole rest of the test. And sometimes that would really hurt them on the other sections. Now it's at the end, it's something that, hey, if it throws you off, you're done with your testing. Also, most kids take the SAT two or three times. Mm -hmm. And so now maybe they'll just do the optional essay the first time. They'll get their fine score and know that it's not really as big a thing, and they won't even have to worry about it when they take it the second or third time. So it's a pretty significant change. Okay, that's interesting. Um, And when, I think another big question in people's minds are, when is this all happening? How is this going to affect my child? Or if you are the student, how is this going to affect me? So can you walk us through, you know, sort of when the changes are going to take place and and who's going to be affected? Great question. Yeah, absolutely. Because really, one of the things, if it doesn't affect you, then don't even worry about it. Um, And so the change will happen in the March administration of the test in 2016. So if you're a senior, by now you're probably done. You don't even have to worry about it. So kids in the class of 2015. If you are a current junior, you're really not going to have to worry about it either. If you're a sophomore, that's where you're kind of on the cusp. If you take the SAT get a great score and are all finished with it the first half of your junior year, so January administration or before, you also don't have to worry about it. So it's really, and we really encourage kids to do that if they can, 
they're an advanced student especially, to get it done with before March anyways because things get really busy with those AP exams and finals and that kind of stuff. Spring of junior year can be really intense. Um, but then anyone who's younger than a current sophomore, um, this is going to be their SAT. Um, yep. So those are the ones that will affect. Okay. So do you have advice? When you kind of touched on it just, just then in terms of, uh, you know, maybe you start the planning process a little bit earlier than you normally would and you take the SAT for those students who are currently sophomores. Maybe you want to take that SAT for the first time in November of your junior year rather than in January of your junior year. That still gives you a couple more times to take it if you need to retake it, which I would say that most students that I work with and most students I know take it at least twice, sometimes three times, um, if they're taking the SAT and they do the same with the ACT if they're taking that. Um, so you started a little bit earlier, but we have gotten um, and and seem to get on a daily basis questions from parents saying, you know, how can we avoid this test? <laughs> um, <Right. yeah>, we're <laughs> worried it's going to be new. We don't don't really yeah. want to be their guinea pigs. Um, what would your advice be for those parents and students that really are sort of saying, I'm not sure we want anything to do with this new SAT until it's been around for a little bit? Absolutely. You know, I think that's, I don't blame a student uh, or a parent for not wanting to be um, that guinea pig. So I think that is really sound advice. Generally, my advice for families is you should be studying for the SAT really the summer between sophomore and junior year. I wouldn't worry about it before you finish junior year. Your goal is get the best grades possible. If you're an advanced student, you could take some of those SAT subject tests Mm -hmm. at the end of sophomore year. But similarly, don't wait too long. And so I think it's great advice for anybody. But now there's even one more great reason, if you are a sophomore, to really intensely focus on the SAT this summer. And you're right, you'll have the October, the November, the December, and the January administrations of the test to get it done and to get it out of the way. Um, so that is, that's a big thing. Another thing is the ACT. Every yes. college will let you take either one. And so one way to kind of avoid if you're on that cusp and, and the kinks are being worked out of the new SAT is just say, you know what? I'm going to take the ACT instead, and all the colleges are fine with it. And something that we did for listeners, because um, I'll talk a lot about generalities, but really my advice, if any of the listeners want, I'm happy to set up a time for them to talk with someone on our team and not talk generalities, talk about their specific students. So we set up a landing page for them. And as part of that, they can take a practice ACT, they can take a practice SAT, and they can see And if kids do way better on the SAT, then they should just focus on that. If they do way better on the ACT, they should just focus on that. Most kids do about the same on each, and then I tell them to pick which one they like better. And this just gives you one more reason to pick the ACT. Yeah, and I do the same thing, and I think what I would love for every listener of this show, and I will probably say it many times um, in the course of all of the shows that we do, uh, is that there really is no preference for the SAT over the ACT. There seems to still be that persistent idea that there is. Um, but even at the most selective levels, we were really just looking for students to get the scores that we expected at our institution. And if that came on the ACT, great. If it came on the SAT, fine. We didn't 
feel that one was better than the other. So I think that's that's great advice. But speaking of the admission side of things, Mary Sue, you were at Barnard when the last time that the SAT made a major change. And I think one of the big things, and I was actually at Penn as well, and, and just families were on edge over this new change and what did it mean and and different schools had different policies. So I was curious about how did you guys at Barnard handle the results from the new tests? Right, yeah. Um, and I, I definitely saw that as well, that, that families were on edge and I kind of see that, that same anxiety kind of popping up again now. So I just kind of say to folks, take a deep breath a little bit because yep. and step back because... Um, you know, before that change in 2005, um, Barnard had required a writing subject test as part of our admissions requirements. We had required three subject tests, one of which had to be writing. And so the change of making writing mandatory into the SAT was really um, similar to our previous uh, requirements of taking a writing subject test. However, um, I think any time that there's a major change in, in, you know, a nationwide standardized test, uh, we, we looked at those, uh, that, that new set of scores um, with a little bit of skepticism for a year or two and said, well, you know, maybe this is a great student in a lot of ways, but the testing is just a touch lower than what we've ne- normally seen, but that might be some of the bugs working itself out of the new testing. And so we're going to give the students the benefit of the doubt. Um, in this new test environment and sort of, you know, we did kind of dip a little for students uh, with their testing for that immediate year or two that they, uh, after that change in 2005. So in that way, you would say that you did kind of change your expectations a little bit for those scores, at least for a little while. Um, would you say, was it just for that first year? or I would was... say it was probably a good year or two. And I think that, um, you know, institutions of higher education are longstanding places that have been around for a hundred years <laughs> or hundreds of years in some cases. Mm-hmm. And um, oftentimes deans of admission are, um, in those positions for a very long time at an institution. And so for folks to move from that at that time, 1,600 to 2,400 um, methodology and, and look at, you know, at the scores, it was a pretty major shift in a lot of people's minds. And I think that even today, if you go on a college campus and go on a, on a, um, a visit and you hear an admissions officer speak, they will say their scores out still out of 1,600 and out of 2,400. And so I do think for that year or two, um, we were more lenient with the scores. But even today, there are schools that before these new changes take place in 2016 will say that they focus more on the, the critical reading and math sections and that the writing section is not as important in their overall admissions evaluation. Yeah, I mean, I think there are still schools out there that uh, still say, because I have people in my office asking this because they hear it on a college campus, that they that they're not they don't consider the writing section. Yeah. Uh, and I think those are schools where once the writing becomes optional again, are probably going to say it's optional. We don't need to see it. We're not going right. to consider it. Right. And I, um, I think that that was definitely true at a place like Barnard. That's a small liberal arts college with a fairly writing intensive curriculum um, and other liberal arts colleges where that prompt of, okay, here's a topic, write about it for 25 minutes instantaneously, was not really mirroring what we were expecting our students to do during their college experience. And so that's why that writing section was always sort of 
viewed um, with a grain of salt as, you know, it, it's a, it was a factor, but it wasn't a major factor at all um, in the, the overall admissions decision-making. Yeah, and I mean, Jake, I don't know um, what light you could shed on the whole scoring of the writing section, but I do know that there was a subscore for the essay that I I don't remember looking particularly closely at that subscore. I looked at the overall writing score, but do you know what percentage of the score accounted the essay accounted for, or if you know, not much yeah. of it, right? Yeah, the. Uh- there's a couple things. So the essay was about a third of your writing score, right? Okay. So, um, which in turn was a third of your total um, 600 to 2400 score. So um, the writing section was both the essay, but then two thirds of it still was multiple choice, which still will be on the test. And so in some ways that multiple choice writing type stuff, grammar and that kind of stuff, um, will be less likely to be ignored than it was before. Because people not only mm-hmm. just threw out the essay, they kind of threw out that whole new writing section. Because they mm-hmm. were yeah, used to using these two sections, math and critical reading. And I said, yeah, that, that's, that's just fine for us. And, and I think it brings up another good point, which is what we really talk to our students about, which is, um, first, your transcript as important as the SAT is, your transcript at every college that I know, and probably even more so at the small liberal arts colleges, is far more important. And so we talk to people about, look, when all this SAT business is going on, your sophomore year and your junior year, it's a big deal, sure. But boy, make sure that you don't um, let your grades slip because you're focused on your SAT. We, even yep. when we're doing tutoring with a student, the big thing that a tutor will say is, do you have any big tests this week? Are you ready for them? Because if you're not, then we shouldn't be studying for the SAT. That can always wait till next week. Let's make sure you're ready for your math test this week or your chem test. And so even coming from being the testing people and the SAT people, boy, nothing is as valuable as taking those challenging courses and doing great in them, the same thing you've been saying all day today. Yep. I would agree with that. And so we're getting close up to the break here. Um, a couple of things that I just wanted to mention, Jake had mentioned that he welcomes families to call in directly and talk specifically about their children. And I did want to just provide people, we have a special email address if you're interested in, in contacting Revolution Prep. And the email is in. Pretty straightforward, G-E-T-I-N at revolutionprep.com. You can also check them out on their website. It's revolutionprep.com forward slash college coach forward slash get in. And I do highly recommend uh, people take advantage of this. Um, I know that Mary Sue and I have sent many students over there just to figure out if the ACT or the SAT is the better option for them. Uh, And also just to do some planning around getting the prep in time to take the tests, um, and especially for those families uh, who are facing the new SAT and and hoping to kind of avoid it until it's been around for a little bit, um, that planning ahead is really going to be important. And so we really encourage you to uh, do that, whether it's with Revolution Prep or um, just doing some plans on your own or working with um, somebody else. I just think thinking ahead and planning is going to be the key to success on this part of the application process. Process. Mary Sue and Jake, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. 
Um, and we're going to go to break. And then after, I'm going to answer some questions that we've received from listeners. And um, maybe that will be a, a question that you've been dying to ask. So hopefully there'll be some good answers there for everybody. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says, yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Families today face unique challenges. Marriage, parenting, and family forms have changed a lot in the last century. Family Matters with Dr. Virginia Collin will focus on building and maintaining healthy family relationships. We will discuss marriage, divorce, family mediation, parenting, lifestyles, and mental health. All kinds of family matters. Our show will feature guest experts and your participation, too. You can listen to Family Matters live every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you so much. If you're still listening after uh, the first two segments, I think um, my guests were wonderful, and hopefully you got a lot out of those. Uh, We're going to end every segment or every episode of this show with Q&A. And um, my hope is to really answer the questions that are most important to you in addition to giving you information in the other segments. We know that uh, oftentimes when I do presentations, the most valuable part of the presentation can be the questions and answers at the end, not only the ones that you yourself pose, but also the ones that other people would like you to answer. Um, in advance of the show, we did sort of reach out to people who uh, are 
you know, sort of been in, have been in contact with College Coach and asked them for some thoughts. And we've also had some questions come in while the show has been going on. Um, one question I'm going to, uh, that came in is a great question, but I am unfortunately not the best person to answer it. So the question is really regarding financial aid and, um, the, the question writer was asking about filling out the FAFSA and really who gets financial aid. And I've heard that it's really if you only, if you make less than $50,000 a year. Um, So I'm not going to answer that today because what I know about financial aid, I know enough to be dangerous, but not at all enough to be helpful. Um, However, next week, I'm going to have my wonderful colleague, Lori Peltier, who is uh, who has more than 20 years in the college and university financial aid. She was both a financial aid director uh, and a consultant to a number of colleges. And she also just went through the process herself with twins, no less. So she has two children in college right now. Uh, and basically, she's going to talk to us about really who qualifies for financial aid anyway, um, because it can be tough to figure that out. And you might be surprised by the answer. Uh, so if you tune in next week, we're going to be talking about that. So one of the questions that came in, uh, I think, is a really directly relates or maybe tangentially, maybe not directly, relates to the question uh, or to the segment that uh, Sally and I had earlier, which was around curriculum choices and when to pick the honors and when to stick with college prep. And uh, so a listener wrote in to ask, you know, do colleges look at the weighted GPA? Are they looking at an unweighted GPA? Um, When I apply, should I submit my unweighted or my weighted GPA? And so what is a weighted GPA versus an unweighted GPA? Uh, an unweighted GPA is just strictly the, what the grades earned in the classes taken. A weighted GPA comes when a high school adds uh, an extra half a point or a point uh, or more to a student's grade depending on the level of the course. So, for example, it's not uncommon for a high school to add uh, half a point for an honors level course and a full extra point for an AP level course. So sort of what happens there then is the student actually earns a B, but in the weighted version of that B, because it's an AP course, they actually earn an A in theory. Um, and, you know, so I say in theory because really a B is a B, and but also because the colleges do look at the rigor of the curriculum uh, when they evaluate the student's transcript. Uh, and the challenging part of all of this is that it really depends from college to college how they look at a student's GPA. Uh, at Penn, where I worked, we calculated our own GPA for the student. We pulled out only those academic courses that fit into those five core courses, so math, science, English, history, and foreign language. We pulled only those course grades out, and then we calculated a GPA, an unweighted GPA also, very important to note. However, when we sat down to look at a student's transcript or to evaluate their application, we always looked at the grades earned and the rigor of the curriculum in which those grades were earned. So we made an assessment of the students, um, the rigor of their curriculum. Was it the most rigorous available? That was what we were hoping to see. Was it simply fairly rigorous? Was it just rigorous? Was it fairly standard? Um, And we made an assessment there. And so even if we had two students who both had a 3.8, if one of those 3.8 
GPAs was earned in a strictly college prep curriculum, that student was not going to be competitive. But if it was earned in in the most rigorous curriculum, in all honors and AP curriculum, then that student was going to be very competitive. There are other colleges where really, um, like we said before, they don't really care if you're doing honors in AP. It's really less important to them. Um, there are colleges that are going to lift a GPA right off the transcript. There are schools that are going to recalculate the GPA and maybe use their own weighting system. Uh, UMass Amherst comes to mind. Uh, they will add a certain amount of points for the student for an honors course and then more points for the AP course, but they use their own system and not the high school system. And they do that so that they can do more comparing apples to apples. And that's another reason why we tried to do that at Penn as well, because we were trying to get everyone on the same system if we could. Uh, So there is no easy answer to this. What I would say is on the common application, which is an application that students can fill out that is accepted at a number of different uh, colleges, uh, they do ask for a GPA and you can put one in there, and then you can say whether or not it is weighted or unweighted. I generally, because it's not a required question, I generally have my students leave that blank um, because colleges that are going to calculate their own GPA are not going to really look at that, um, and the colleges that are going to lift it off of a transcript are going to have the transcript, and they're going to be able to pull it right off of that transcript. So it's sort of a moot point. And the colleges are also going to make the decision whether they're going to look at a weighted GPA or an unweighted GPA. Uh, So I wish there was an easy answer to this. As with many things related to college admissions, there really isn't. Um, It really does depend. It's going to depend on the institution uh, and, and how they look at this. But Um, so there really isn't any easy answer. I would say though, if you were, if you really wanted to fill that section out and you had both a weighted and an unweighted GPA, I would probably use the weighted GPA. Um, why not? But, uh, like I said, I think in most cases, the colleges are going to either pull something right off of your transcript or they're going to calculate it, uh, on their own. Okay. So, Another question that came through was from uh, a mom who was asking if your child has a medical disability and had a bad year in high school, but the next year and a half were trending upward, should the medical disability be disclosed in the application? I think a bigger picture general rule of thumb here is that if an If an admissions officer is going to be looking at a student's application and there are going to be questions, so you're looking at the application and sophomore year was a disaster compared to freshman year and junior year and the first half of senior year, you're probably going to say to yourself as an admissions officer, what happened here? Why are the grades so bad compared to uh, the other years? In that situation, what you don't want to do is leave it up to them to decide on their own what they think happened. Because in general, if you're guessing, you're probably going to guess incorrectly. You know, my assumption might be, well, there's no explanation here. So I guess this student just decided not to work very hard that year. Um, when the reality might be that they had a serious medical condition that prevented them from attending school as much as they normally would, uh, maybe prevented them from studying. They, you know, I know of students who have bad concussions and it means that they can't really read. Um, they have trouble looking at a screen and it can really, really negatively impact uh, grades. And sometimes it's just for a month or two. Sometimes it can affect an entire year. 
So whether it's a medical condition or uh, a situation at home, maybe mom and dad are going through um, a tough patch, maybe they're going through a nasty divorce, maybe um, someone close to the student uh, got very ill or even passed away. Uh, these are all things that can happen that will negatively impact a student's performance. And I do feel that that information should be provided to the college so that they can really understand where the student is coming from. The caveat to that would be there are some things that can raise red flags um, in an admissions office. So things like a student suffering from an eating disorder, um, things like um, depression. These are big issues on college campuses right now, and many schools, um, are their health systems are really overloaded trying to help these students. And so um, in some cases, you need to disclose regardless, uh, and it's an important part of the student's story, and um, they may be on the other side of that and really very healthy and functioning, um, in which case that could be a really good story to tell. Um, but understand that it does carry with it some issues that some schools may have a trouble have trouble um, getting past. But I do think that uh, you know any any significant deviation from a student's normal performance, um, it's very important that uh, the student really disclose uh, that information. Uh, now, the question is how to disclose it, where to disclose it. Um, if it was a medical issue, you might have uh, a doctor include a note, and then the student could include a paragraph or two about what happened and how the student dealt with the issue and where they are now uh, in the additional information section of the application. Um, if it's really integral to the student's story, it's, it might be something that they would write about in their main essay, but I think there, one of the cautions, or one of the things I would say is, is that the, the most compelling thing you could write about? Is that story going to be something where the student, the admissions officer puts that essay down and says, wow, this is someone we, we want to have on our campus? Um, and if the story really doesn't lend itself to that, if there are, you're missing an opportunity to share uh, a different story about yourself, one that is really interesting and um, highlights a particular strength of yours, then I would say that the dis- the explanation is probably better off in that additional information section so that you can write your essay about something that's a little bit more focused on the positives rather than on a negative. Um, okay. Uh, I think I have room for one more question here. So this is a question from a mom who's um, writing to us about her sophomore who's in the top 10 of her class, and she loves art, um, but she's considering dropping it for this year, this coming year, uh, to take to double up in math instead of taking that art class because she wants to kind of keep her GPA competitive. And mom and dad are encouraging her to take art. Good job, mom and dad. I think that's a really good uh, a good thing to encourage. Um, her career interests are business and writing related. Um, and, you know, do admissions officers value the pursuit of a passion? I don't really have enough time today to go into that, that um, in detail, but I will say, yes, they do value pursuit of a passion. And I would say that so long as the student is doing those five courses, math, science, English, history, and foreign language, um, those are going to be the things that they look for. So long as art is not being taken in place of a math, um, then I would say stick with the art, forget about doubling up on the math. Uh, I think sometimes students do the wrong things in pursuit of 
what they see as the highest GPA. But because so many schools are going to calculate their own GPAs, uh, and many of them are only going to count those core academic courses, I don't really know that that second math course adds significantly to a student's GPA. And if it takes her away from a real passion, um, I really don't advise it. Um, Okay. So uh, as I get ready to wrap up the first... First edition of Getting in a College Coach Conversation. Uh, I did want to let you know, we already talked about that next week. We're going to be talking about who qualifies for financial aid with my colleague, Lori Peltier. We're also going to be talking about, even though it is impossible almost to imagine that um, summer will be here at some point. Um, I'm here in the Northeast where we have uh, close to three feet of snow on the ground and where in uh, later this, in the next 10 days, I hear we may get two to three more feet. Um, but summer will be here. And it is really important to take advantage of that break for those students that have it. And so, um, you know, we are going to talk some more about planning for the summer break and how to make the most of that time. And then for those of you who are already thinking about the college list, how to get started, how to think about either where you're going to apply if you're the student or where your child is going to apply, um, we're going to be talking about how to get that process started um, with my colleague Steve Brennan. So thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you next week here at Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, 4 o'clock Eastern Time, uh, 1 o'clock Pacific. Thanks very much, and have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. We'll be right back.